I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending February 28th. In this episode, we're mixing it up a little bit. Ordinarily, we look at the major themes that emerged from the news during the preceding week, and we focus on two or three of those. This past week, there were no prevailing themes, however. We were just all over the place, in the most literal sense of the phrase. Nitin Dehad, Sally Ward-Foxton, and Anne-Francoise Pelé were in Germany at the Embedded World Conference. I was in San Francisco at the International Solid State Circuits Conference, and Junko Yoshida was in Barcelona, where Mobile World Congress would have been if it hadn't been canceled. So this week, what we have is a smorgasbord. A bunch of stories and interviews about embedded systems, artificial intelligence, edge computing, material science, autonomous driving, and more. So strap in, it's going to be an entertaining and informative ride. If we're going to talk about international trade conferences and travel, we are obliged to bring up the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak. With the virus spreading to Korea, Iran, and most recently to Italy, it looks like the disruption it is causing is going to persist. Is the world responding with caution, or is it panicking? As a practical matter, it doesn't matter because the results look similar. Either way, manufacturing in China, the epicenter of the outbreak, would have been curtailed. With travel understandably restricted, it's hard to get what has been manufactured shipped to where it has to go. Presumably in response to these supply chain disruptions, U.S. financial markets had the third biggest point drop in history earlier in the week. On a percentage basis, the decline wasn't that dire, but still, a big drop is a big drop. And with the virus spreading unpredictably, people all over the world are understandably reluctant to travel and that's affecting the international conference schedule. That's not insignificant. Conferences generate revenue for their organizers, for the travel industry, and for host cities. At some of the larger conferences, literally billions of dollars of contracts get signed every year. Lose those conferences, and the financial losses ripple through the global economy. Because of the outbreak, dozens of events have been put off or canceled. Semicon Korea and Semicon China were called off. Then Mobile World Congress, scheduled for this week, was also canceled. We knew that a few major companies had decided not to go to Embedded World in Nuremberg, Germany, but the organizers decided to forge ahead anyway. When EE Times editors Nitin Dehad, Sally Ward-Foxton, and Anne-Francoise Palais met up at the show, of course attendance was the first topic of discussion. So the atmosphere is a little bit strange here, I must say. Uh, there are a lot of big spaces where a lot of big companies have pulled out of the show. Uh, the show organizers, I must say, have been very inventive, actually trying to cover the space, fill the space with different cafes, restaurants, rest areas, even palm trees in one place. Um, so they, they really have made a good effort there. Uh, on the whole, I'd say most of the booths I've seen, there was plenty of people around, lots of interested visitors looking at all the demos. Uh, so the atmosphere, I must say, is brighter than I thought. Right. And, and Francoise? Well, actually, it's my first time here, so nothing to compare with. Um, but I'm, 
I really enjoyed the friendly atmosphere. People tend to be more relaxed and um, I could have a conversation, quality conversation with uh, CEOs and or, or um, executives. And many of them were saying that they were having actually more leads than in previous editions. So it's, it's quite um, efficient for him. And actually, I had a conversation with an IHS um, analyst, and for him, it was quite difficult to take the pulse of the industry from the floor. But um, it would be an occasion for him to go and see them startups or medium-sized companies. And yeah, I, I think um, I've been coming to Embedded World for uh, a few years. And I definitely, when I first came in, I walked in with Anne-Francoise and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But I think it's sort of as, as I was starting to talk to people, it was people were feeling, okay, we've got, it's very calm. And that's their way of saying it's very quiet. But also at the same time, they were saying, we've had some very good, productive conversations, more in-depth conversations with people. And I think like you both said, you know, some people are actually getting uh, better leads as well. Uh, so I, I, for me, I thought, uh, yes, there were lots of space. I mean, I was told a story by somebody that DSpace, they had their people in in the morning and then all of a sudden they abandoned and then there's a notice up which I may post on, on the site which basically says on the TV screen due to health and safety concerns we're not going to participate this year. So they literally abandoned this morning. It's terrible. <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, coming away from that, I think there were some really good uh, conversations we've all had. And, and, and I think the one that probably sounded most mind-blowing was yours, Sally. Yeah, so I've been speaking to Cartesium. They're a French company uh, based in the south of France. They're very cool, actually. They have figured out a way to do training, machine learning training. They can basically train the algorithm and create the model on the microcontroller right in the endpoint. Uh, you can use anything from an ARM Cortex M0 right up to M7. So, I mean, this totally blew my mind today. I must say, never seen anything like that before. Yeah, and I, th I think that really follows on from uh, the Edge Intelligence Special Project we, we sort of published last week. Uh, for me, what I was seeing was a lot, uh, and talking to people, they're saying, yeah, there's a lot of AI that's real, and it's coming into the sensors, and you know, it's all around the sensors, the IoT. And in Europe, obviously, uh, you've got a str strength in that area, in the IoT and the sensors. And I saw a lot of um, industrial automation uh, stuff. Actually, I saw a startup from India on the Lattice uh, booth. And it, I mean, they're 200 people, and they've already got uh, customers like Ericsson uh, using it uh, for uh, doing AI on the FPGA itself, so locally, to yeah. try and figure out. Uh, yeah. I think I'm, you might have seen them as well. Yeah, I did yeah. see them. They were doing um, uh, it, like inspection, industrial inspection of parts as they come by on the conveyor belt. Yeah, it was very cool. It was very cool. Yeah. What about you, Francoise? Uh, well, I had the chance to talk uh, to Fraunhofer Institute, and there was an impromptu um, discussion, and they showed me the way to a um, conference. And so I went to the conference, and actually it was the, the official launch of um, the MyoT Alliance and MyoT Technology. Um, basically, what uh, what they are doing is, well, they're, they're envisioning their smart cities of the future. And the idea is really to connect all the sensors without interference. Right now, there's interferences when you connect 1,000 sensors together, but with the technology, you will be able to connect 1 million um, sensors without interference. So it was um, initiated by the Friend Offer Institute and and then um, the, one of the early partners uh, was um, TI. And uh, they're opening today uh, to many other um, partners. So it was 
an interesting discussion. Uh, and I, I think one of the other things, I mean, I had a lot of discussions with people just sort of on the show floor because you could, because people were so relaxed. We did a story on Risk 5 in E Times Europe uh, a couple of months ago uh, because of them pulling their headquarters into Switzerland. Well, supposedly, I don't think that's happening. But I asked a few people, yeah, is, is it really real? Because, you know, we keep hearing these numbers. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, there's a mixed response. I said, yeah, it's there, but it's more like a companion processor at the moment. And it's not really sort of main process. People are still experimenting, things like that. But I'm going to be speaking to Callista Redmond uh, later this week, hopefully. So maybe find out a little bit more. So I, th- so I think Arm just uh, put out a press release today saying they've had the best quarter ever, like in all of history. So I think there's still some question about how much impact Risk 5 is actually having. Yeah, yeah I, I saw that and it flashed through. So I thought uh, quite interesting to obviously look at. Well, um, actually, this reminds me of the conversation with the analyst because he told me that we are going to have at least two quarters of down economy. Um, so yeah, I find it very interesting. I also had a conversation with a, a CEO, the 10 best CEO. The technology comes from the Northwestern University. They had been working for years on ultrasonic and they, they, they were not happy with it because it was showing weaknesses. So they, they, they decided to change it and go into electro addition. So it's, it's a quite different approach into optics. So they, they, what they are trying to do is avoid the vibration uh, that resonates throughout uh, all the, the system. And so that now you can have your wife sitting next to you in the car, uh, changing the music while you want to change the temperature on the same touch panel and it doesn't um, interfere. That company is quite interesting. Um, first, I thought they would be very high in the consumer electronics, but actually, no, they are very, um, they are conquering the automotive um, industry. More to come, I guess. I saw a company today and um, I just happened to walk past them and I talked to them because we've covered a few haptics companies mm-hmm. in the past. Uh, they were a distributor, but they started developing technology uh, for haptics and he showed me some of the demos and they said like, if you're in an industrial environment where it's critical, yeah. you don't want things to go wrong. You want to be looking at the inspection while you're doing something mm-hmm. on here. So the haptics enables them to do that. So yeah, it's a very interesting area. And that kind of leads me on to another area, which I had a conversation with um, uh, Secure, Secure Things, part of a IAR and Hayden Povey. And security, it's still a big area. But people still need to be educated. I don't yeah. think um, right from the beginning, yeah, they're, they're saying that um, uh, it's security is not just something you just throw over the fence for somebody to do. And I, I think uh, he said it, it still takes a lot of uh, work on the market. So, um, yeah, I think that was uh, day one of Embedded World 2020 in Nuremberg. In that last segment, Sally mentioned a company called Cartesium that's made a rather astonishing claim. Sally caught up with the company's CEO, Joel Rubino, to ask him about it. So really we're talking about something that's never been possible before, which is to do AI training or incremental learning for machine learning right on the endpoint, right in the edge device, right in the microcontroller. Is it really possible? Can you really do it? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm Joel Rubino, CEO of Cartesium, and uh, we are announcing today uh, Studio, which is a development environment that will let any embedded developers uh, create a machine learning library inside uh, the studio, and then they can uh, link the library into their program and they get uh, machine learning inside uh, the microcontroller. The good thing is, uh, as you said, they will be able to do not only inference, but also learning inside the microcontroller. 
So the learning phase will be done locally on each machine. How do you make it work? How do you make it so small? I mean, microcontroller, we're talking about really very resource-constrained environments. Can you tell us anything about how it works? Yeah, actually, uh, in order to achieve that, uh, when we started the company four years ago, we decided that uh, to run artificial intelligence, I prefer to say machine learning inside a microcontroller, uh, was really a, a challenge. And uh, we decided not to take the route of, uh, you know, this big uh, AI framework that uh, are used today, such as TensorFlow, Keras, Cafe, and so on and so forth. So we really started from scratch, from the algebra, and we rewrote every single algorithm in order uh, for them to fit and to, to, be, to be executed inside the microcontroller with a constraint of a microcontroller. So it was really a three years mathematic exercise. So we hired a, a lot of uh, PhDs in uh, advanced mathematics, machine learning, and signal processing in order to rewrite all these machine learning algorithms as well as signal processing algorithms so they can fit inside the microcontroller. I think something that you're seeing in the market that we've just been talking about is how makers of endpoint systems, sensor systems, right at the edge of the network, are starting to see value from their products going up into the cloud. If they want to do machine learning, it's got to go up into the cloud. Something like this, where we can bring the machine learning right into the endpoint, it's a great way to add value into the end product, right? That's exactly uh, the idea. Uh, today we meet with a lot of customers that are afraid that uh, uh, they are quote-unquote just basic hardware providers because they create the data, but then the data, uh, they all go to the cloud where actually the big engines are working and creating the value. And uh, so using our technology, being able to create the data and analyze the data where the data is created at the edge, uh, help them to keep the value inside the, the device and not inside the cloud. Now, I want to make it clear that uh, I think uh, edge AI is not opposite to cloud AI. Uh, customers have to analyze where it makes most sense for them to analyze the data, whether it's cloud or in the edge, based on latency, resilience, security, and, and also availability of uh, resources. Because if you want to do cloud AI, you need to have a data scientist, you need to have data that represent the phenomenon you want to observe. And we know that uh, most of the projects are failing because they cannot hire a data scientist and it's difficult to get the data. Now, with the technology we bring today on the market, uh, since the learning is done directly in the machine, they don't need data scientists, they don't need data, and the tool we are providing uh, will help any embedded developers without any specific skills to create their machine learning uh, uh, library inside their program. So the customers we see today, they see a lot of value in our approach because, again, it keeps the data in the sensor, analyze and create the value locally, and they are a big fan of this approach. And you're set up for any ARM Cortex-M series microcontroller, anything from M0 to M7 or the new M55, right? Yeah, the, the way the studio works, uh, and you can go on cartesium.ai and download a, a free version of it, uh, you just choose uh, which microcontroller you want to use between M0 and M7, the maximum RAM you want to allocate to your library, and uh, the type of sensor you want to use, and you're up and running. And we support uh, any ARM Cortex-M microcontroller. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. 
You can see for yourself if Cartesium really pulled it off. The company's made its tool available on its website. Okay, next, we're off to Spain. EE Times International Editor Junko Yoshida had non-refundable tickets to Mobile World Congress, so why not just go anyways to Barcelona, one of the world's great cities? Well, honestly, she actually had some meetings set up. One of those was Soytech, which occupies a rather interesting space in the electronics industry. The company specializes in designing wafers. It derives its name from one particular alternative technology called Silicon on Insulator, or SOI, hence the name Soytech. Soytech produces SOI wafers with a process it calls Smart Cut. You're going to hear about that in a moment, so it's worth a quick explanation. With silicon, you grow a big cylindrical ingot, and you slice it into wafers. You can't do that with silicon on insulator. What Soytech does is it takes a silicon wafer, wafer A, it creates an insulating layer on it, on wafer A. Then it bonds the insulating layer to another wafer, that's wafer B, and it peels off wafer A. So Soytech grows an insulator on wafer A, transfers it to wafer B. You end up with a high quality wafer B, which is used to build circuits, and then wafer A is reused to grow another layer of insulator. That whole process is smart cut. This particular process of transferring ultra-thin, single crystal layers from one substrate to another gives circuit designers the ability to manage the active layers on a chip independently from the supporting mechanical substrate. Silicon has performance limits, and if you want to create ICs that have characteristics that exceed those limits, you need to move on to something new. That includes silicon on insulator. SOI has been widely used to make the RF components in communication systems, notably for 3G and 4G cellular phones and equipment. Now, again, the industry is hitting performance limits with silicon, so as we move to 5G, 5G wireless phones and base stations operate at different frequencies than their 3G and 4G predecessors. There are materials that are particularly well-suited for RF at 5G frequencies, including some of the so-called 3.5 materials. Compounds such as gallium nitride, also referred to as GAN, and silicon carbide, or SIC. There are other components going into 5G communications that require piezoelectric materials. It just so happens that Soytech believes that smart cut technology is really good for growing high quality GAN, SIC, and piezoelectric materials for 5G products, as well as for AI chips and other applications. So the big news from Soytech this week was the company's ambitious plan to branch out to better compound material wafers. Soytech will start sampling its smart cut sick wafers in the second half of 2020. These new wafers will be available for key customers who make devices in both power and RF applications. Junko asked Soytech CEO Paul Boudre about how the availability of these high quality wafers will help 5G chip companies, especially the fabulous designers. In fact, um, we have been in the RF world uh, at Soytech from, from the very beginning, uh, starting at 3G, going into 4G. At 4G, we, we started to really uh, realize that our uh, materials and uh, the, the products that we were offering were getting more into the, you know, the, um, uh, it was a kind of uh, platform that most of the, the customer wanted to use and they were pushing us also to develop uh, a better performance um, uh, in order to su su sustain and support their roadmap. Yep. 
So we created standards uh, um, at the 4G level where 100% of the smartphone we are using our technology for switches, antenna tuner, and we realized that more um, complex problems were in front of us by working with the, the, the fabulous people and companies. So we started also to think through and design, I mean, new capabilities with our technology, smart cut technology, and bringing new materials to life in order to sustain uh, 4G LTE Advanced, LTE Advanced Pro, and going into 5G. So uh, we realized that uh, some of the materials were also missing, and we started to bring, um, again, new material into this uh, roadmap, like uh, Piezo mm -hmm. on insulator for filter, new filters right. for uh, 4G Advanced uh, technology, but also for 5G. We realized also that uh, GAN was also part of the um, uh, new product that we, we wanted to I mean, the, our end customers wanted to use yeah. as part of the substations, but also as part uh, potentially of the phone itself. And so we acquired a company by the name of Epigan uh, in, 18, Belgium. in Belgium yeah. 18 months ago. Mm -hmm. And well, now, I mean, what we are developing, it's basically, I mean, an a la carte menu where we, we bring these materials together and we can design the best material for the right applications. Now, what you are saying is that when the world moved to the post-Moore's law era, fabulous ship companies are now looking to really downstream. Let's go down and deep to the materials used on the wafer. Is that right? Yeah, yeah it is true that Moore's law has its own, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, criteria, and and. Now the industry is very mature yeah. in terms, uh, and the leadership is uh, well understood mm -hmm. in terms of uh, uh, these uh, these technologies, digital technologies. When it comes to uh, mobility, yeah. there is a, a, a new era in terms of challenges, mm -hmm. and uh, this is about uh, this is about power. This is about performance. And this is the mix of this power performance that uh, gives uh, a, a little bit of uh, edec, uh, to a lot of to a lot of a lot of companies, and uh, finding the solutions. Uh, it's not a, it's not all about you know shrinking the device. Uh, in most of the cases, it's uh, it's the contrary. I mean, uh, ah. we are, we are talking about uh, a different type of devices, right. uh, and um, and uh, this is where materials come to play yep. in a big time. So uh, we realize. And uh, this, and, and just to give you a couple of uh, challenges, yeah. uh, at least uh, in terms of market, we believe today that uh, the automotive uh, car, um, the car market is, and in the industry, it's a new era. Yeah. And, and we heard about uh, silicon carbide. That's one of the challenges that the industry has to, uh, how do we bring uh, a very strong supply chain for silicon carbide, but also a better supply chain in terms of quality. If you think now about um, edge AI, this is also another new era. Mm. Okay, we need to bring all the models that have been developed in the cloud and the capability that has been developed in the cloud on the edge of the application. Right. That's also a new challenge yeah. where you need to bring on the same chip, yeah. not only the computing capability, mm. but also the, the embedded uh, memory capability, the RF capability. RF cap so yeah. all these devices have to be built uh, I mean, very much, um, very much, I mean, there are very few existing right now. Yeah. And we believe our FDSOI capability yeah. will bring a platform for this. When it comes to, <coughs> when it comes to a new filter, for example, mm -hmm. 
on 5G. I mean, we know that 5G will require, I mean, much more capabilities in terms of uh, antenna and power performance as well. Mm -hmm. But filtering is uh, also the one key. of the key challenges. So we, we created, I mean, uh, started two years ago, we started to think about this problem working with the fabulous uh, people and companies. And we, we basically uh, created a new substrate, which is a piezo on insulator, so on oxide and silicon. That will bring much more stability uh, in the, uh, at the operating level in terms of uh, temperature stability, but also uh, uh, improving the performance of the filter itself. Right. So we believe today uh, as a company that uh, Soitec is um, in a position where we want to create for all these applications a kind of a la carte menu mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where uh, uh, companies and fabulous companies uh, will, uh, you know, work with us trying to define, I mean, what is the best material that they want to use, what is, and we can create and design yeah. basically everything right. with our smart cut technology. Right, so it is really, it's about, um, what did you say, designing and generating the new material for the next generation chips. Absolutely. Yeah, very good, thank you. Soytech believes it can help IC designers improve their competitive positions by providing them with high-quality alternative semiconductor wafers that start out with excellent performance characteristics. Last week, I exited my homestead in the Great White North and wended my way down to the city of San Francisco to attend the International Solid State Circuits Conference. ISSCC is another one of those conferences where all the material is exceedingly deep. It's like the Marianas Trench of semiconductor research. The COVID-19 epidemic was lightly felt at this one, though at least a couple dozen presenters could not make it because of travel restrictions. The organizers gently reminded attendees that no one should take it personally if someone else declined to shake hands. So that was last week in San Francisco. Next week, the RSA conference is being held at a venue just two blocks away from where the ISSCC was held, and several major participants have pulled out, and it's not clear that conference will continue to go on. Anyway, we have a couple of stories from ISSCC up on our website. One from Tyrius Research Analyst Kevin Crewell, who covered the processor session, and the other by moi. I wrote about the plenary sessions. The ISSCC tapped a couple of dozen technologies to highlight at an evening event where companies were able to demonstrate the innovations they talked about in papers delivered earlier in the day. I was able to squeeze in to interview two of the presenters. One was with Ferric, a company that was listed in our Silicon 60 Hot Startups to watch in 2014. All right, so I'm Noah Sturkin. I'm one of the founders and CEO of Ferric. Uh, so today we're showing our latest uh, product developments. It's, it's a single chip power converter that includes ferromagnetic thin film inductors. So we have, um, I think, two sort of innovations there. One is the inclusion of these new magnetic materials. Uh, Ferric owns this technology. We've partnered and licensed this to TSMC. So they're doing manufacturing for us. They're also offering that manufacturing process to their customers. Um, we're among them developing our own single chip power converter, which we're demonstrating here. Um, the chip is, is also exceptional and it's the current density that it achieves. So we get about uh, two amps per square millimeter for the full solution. And that scales well up to a couple hundred amps. 
so this particular power converter, we're seeing a lot of interest for high-performance computing applications, anything that has significant DIDT events or challenges with high current density. These PVRs, um, package-integrated voltage regulators, can be co-packaged right next to that processor, and in doing so, save significant power um, cost and area for that total solution. So, long time coming, and uh, we're sampling parts now, and um, really excited about uh, what looks to be a pretty good adoption. Fantastic. So, um, cost? Well, you, you mentioned high performance computing, a lot of uh, a lot of high performance type of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's usually areas where cost is no object. Um, uh, what what's the cost structure with uh, with your part? Um, so we're, we have a direct chip sale um, and targeting a few different markets. Uh, we're already selling parts into some lower power RF systems and package. So this next product will go into higher power computing modules up to, um, I guess, about 300 watts for this part. And um, costs, manufacturing costs from TSMC, that's their business. But of course, we're interested in high volume business. This is very attractive for high performance computing but also for mobile computing. And uh, I, I think uh, it's kind of a convenient stepping stone to go from HPC to then uh, high-performance computing where volumes are an order of magnitude higher and expectations for quality are also. So you've got TMC doing it. Can you describe the construction of your part sure. and whether it fits into uh, a, you know, a common CMOS process or not? Yeah, so... Uh, you know, TSMC has exceptional technology for um, front-end devices, of course, but they've also made a lot of progress with their packaging technology, you know, wafer-level CSP, info technology, and um, these devices are integrated in a similar fashion. So it's essentially a wafer-level um, post-process applied to really any CMOS wafer in one of TSMC's advanced back-end fabs. In doing that, there's a lot of packaging compatibility that's available. So what we're showing here is a single chip that has the parts. You can treat this as a black box. The bumps are going to be, you know, should be very convenient to integrate pretty much with any modern SOC that has flip chip IC packaging. So compatibility with the current form factor is great. And then compatibility with options like COAS, or wafer-to-wafer bonding, um, or uh, embedding into organic materials. Those are all also really attractive options that are afforded by the relationship with TSMC. Fantastic. So from what you just told me, if I were an engineer interested in using your part, it sounds like I don't need to know anything special about working with it, or or are there a few other, you know, are there other considerations? you know, I, th- I think it's kind of like a board-level power converter. You can get a board-level power module and, you know, read input power, output power. You know, there's a lot going on there, but we try to make it very user-friendly. And so the part that we have now, it's essentially a black box. We have customers that aren't experts in power electronics at all, and they've had a lot of success with the parts. We provide, you know, a complete set of models for development, both for power integrity and for interfaces. And um, we'll often, uh, in later stages of design, get involved with our customers to make sure that uh, they're utilizing the chip and, I guess, benefiting from our experience. So, So we'll help with package extractions, power integrity simulations, and optimizing compensation parameters and so forth, just to make sure customers get a great result. Seems to be working pretty well. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Noah. Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. The other company I talked to at 
ISSCC's demo night was Texas Instruments, a fairly large semiconductor manufacturer that's achieved a few innovations over the years. At the conference, the company presented a paper on its seventh generation Yacinto processor. We talked to the author of the paper. Uh, hey, Brian. Uh, my name is Rama, Rama Venkata Subramanian. Uh, I manage the uh, IP development team and the director of the IP development team in TI Dallas. So earlier today, we presented uh, paper 2.6, which is basically uh, uh, Jacinto platform, Jacinto 7 automotive SOC platform. Uh, it is a ground-up platform taking automotive functional safety and quality as a primary design goals. So three innovations we showcased earlier today are the C7X DSP, which is a DSP optimized for all three scalar, vector, and matrix math, basically for deep learning and neural network operations. Then we also showcased two different accelerators, an accelerator called VPAC, vision pre-processing accelerator, and DMPAC, uh, depth and motion perception accelerator. So along with these three, and additional things that we did in the platform for implementation in 16 FinFET for automotive quality are the differentiations we showed earlier in the paper. So this demo is basically showcasing two different applications running in the SOC at the same time. So one is a 360-degree surround view application where you have four 2-megapixel cameras running real-time and it's processed through the VPAC accelerator and it's rendered real-time, as you can see. And in parallel, simultaneously, you have three additional uh, camera inputs coming in and that's trying to do uh, uh, an automat automatic uh, valet parking type application but you're trying to find a free parking spot it requires three different neural networks running one is a 68 deep convolutional neural network the other is 48 deep network all three running at the same time in the dsp and rendered and uh, together so essentially two different applications running concurrently in the same soc Okay, so what I'm looking at right now is a screen. It's got uh, the ve vehicle view moving in through a parking lot. There's cars here, there, and uh, all about. Uh, some empty spots and some others. So uh, what exactly does the uh, processor look for? Uh, what, do you, what have you tuned the algorithm to look for and how does it work? So this is a general purpose DSP, right? So it can be programmed to run any deep learning network. In this case, it is the weights and other things are programmed to run an image processing network. It can also be targeted towards some other processing, image, uh, speech processing, for example, or video processing, for example. So here it's tuned for finding five different classes of segments. So five different classes being vehicles, pedestrians, uh, sky, background, and trees, I believe. So five different networks. That's what it's trained to run in this application. Yeah. All right. So, uh, have you tested this out? So, what we're looking at, you've got a, uh, the the setup mounted on a skateboard, essentially. Have you uh, have you done the demo on the skateboard? Have you done it on cars yet? Yes, we have. So, in CES, it is a different setup. This car could actually run, okay. and you could you actually had real time feed from different cameras that could show uh, where it's finding empty spots or not. We couldn't get all of that stuff replicated here, so it's just a simple skateboard-like setup. So, uh, for as a practical matter, if somebody wanted to use it for the demonstration you're using, um, we're looking at uh, looks like a three la three layers worth of boards there. I'm sure it could be integrated down. Uh, how far integrated down? What kind of uh, what kind of parameters would people be looking at if they wanted to implement it? So, what you're looking at is the evaluation module from TI. It's not the real chip. Real chip is a single integrated SOC, and all it needs is the PMIC and the additional memory that goes around it. This 
integrates tons of additional other components that would have otherwise been on the board already in. Like a lot of the power management circuitry is already pre-integrated. Uh, and there is an integrated MCU, integrated microcontroller. Essentially, two different chips inside the same chip, fully isolated. So, you cannot see the SOC right now, but that's the integrated SOC. That's all that you know a car manufacturer would need and the additional system that they want to build in order to take this into production. And if they wanted to uh, modify it with their own algorithms? So that's the very reason these are general purpose programmable DSPs and any customer can target it to whatever application they want to run. And that's the fundamental idea. So what do you drive? I drive a BMW uh, um, 5 Series. Yeah, and uh, I don't have these advanced features yet. I mean, again, depending on the car model, right? So some of these used to be like premium features, as you can imagine, and now they've started to come into slightly lower-end cars as well, and very soon, because of Europe and other restrictions, right, NCAP and other restrictions, this will become standard. So it has to have at least a pedestrian detection and a few, few applications that need to be running all the time. So you'd let this thing park your car today? Yeah. There are already cars that are doing it today. Probably they're throwing in a lot more compute and a lot more power. This is just running all of those in an embedded environment at a smaller power footprint. That's all. Rama, thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, one last thing about the coronavirus. As we noted earlier, there's caution and there's panic. And sometimes the results look like the same thing. And sometimes they don't. Everywhere we've gone, there are Chinese restaurants who are on the edge of going out of business for no good reason. If you're in one of those many places, completely free of any hint of the virus, and isolated far, far from the next nearest case, San Francisco, for example, if you're in the mood, just go ahead and get yourself some Mugu Gaipan or something. It's okay. And speaking of Mugu Gaipan... It's time for our weekly foray into the past to celebrate the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. On February 28th in 1956, Jay Forrester received a patent for a multi-coordinate digital information storage device, what would later commonly be called a magnetic core memory. Just a few days later, An Wang sold his patent for a version of core memory to IBM for a half a million dollars. Wang used that money to fund the company he co-founded, Wang Laboratories. Now, after World War II, Forrester was working with MIT helping to design a powerful new computer, which he knew would benefit from faster and more flexible memory. The fundamental idea behind magnetic core memory had been established long before, but Forrester perfected an approach to building one in 1951. That's when he applied for the patent he received in 56. His memory was first used in 1953 in the computer that MIT was building for the U.S. Navy. That computer was called Whirlwind, and it's notable for being the first to be able to do calculations in real time, a quality predicated in part on the superior speed of Forrester's core memory. Magnetic core memories used small magnetic donuts set in a wire lattice to store digital data. These memories could rarely be produced without at least some tweaking by hand, but vendors still managed to drive the price down from roughly a dollar a bit in the 1950s to about a penny a bit by about 1970. 1970, not coincidentally, was the year Intel introduced the 1103 Dynamic Random Access Memory Chip, which entered the market at a penny a bit. 
Do you want to know why Gordon Moore came up with Moore's Law? The cost of a bit was important. The DRAM killed off core memory within a few short years. Also today, we have a sesquicentennial. On February 26th in 1870, Alfred Beach, at the time the editor of Scientific American magazine, opened the first subway in New York City, technically illegally. Traffic in Manhattan had become intolerable, and Beach felt that building a subway like the one in London was the only sensible technological solution. The political machine running the city successfully fought against giving him a franchise for a transportation system, however. They were making far too much money from surface transportation, and they had no intention of allowing any competition. At the time, pneumatic systems were all the technological rage, and Beach requested and received a franchise from the state, not the city, for a pneumatic mail system. He then set about building his subway instead, clandestinely digging a hole nine feet in diameter and running the distance of one city block. 20 feet beneath Broadway, between Murray and Warren Streets. The unique train, shaped like a cylinder, ran not with a steam engine, but on pneumatics, blown back and forth by enormous fans. 150 years ago, Beach opened his tunnel to the world. Curious riders poured into his opulent station, described by some as akin to Alibaba's hideaway, decorated with a water fountain and a chandelier, and with a piano on the platform. Beach's subway drew 400,000 riders at 25 cents apiece that first year, but he was eventually overwhelmed by the antagonism of the political machine, the opposition of landlords worried about the foundations of their buildings, and unspecified technical problems. The empty train tunnel was used as a shooting range for a short time, but then the whole thing was sealed up. Sick Transit Gloria Transit, or something like that. So that's your weekly briefing for the week ending February 28th. The weekly briefing appears every Friday. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and of course find it on our website at eetimes.com, where you can find a transcript of every podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, share the podcast with your coworkers and friends. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. I'll see you next week.